Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department with my colleague, Susanna Greer. We just got off the phone with Dr. Charlie Benson. I first heard of Dr. Benson when she was funded uh, by us, by the American Cancer Society, back in 2016, um, in part through the help of uh, generous donor Steve Smiley. But you've known Dr. Benson for a lot longer, Susanna. Absolutely. Charlie and I were professors together at Georgia State. In fact, we had joint lab meetings and mentored students together, and we just, we had a really good time, as good a time as you can have when you are new professors and getting your programs off the ground. I had been at Georgia State for about six years when Charlie joined, so I was her official mentor, but unofficially we were just good friends and um, did a lot of great science together, so she's a joy. We had a wide-ranging talk about her research, what it's like to come up through the ranks, and um, you know what ACS funding has done for her. So let's get into it now. Thanks, Susanna. Sure. Hey, Charlie. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Lovely day in the ATL. You're only a few blocks away from me, so I assume it's also about 100 degrees where you are. It is. I'm looking out my window. It's very sunny and it's beautiful. So, All right. Well, speaking of you looking out your window, we'd love to know a little more about you. Can you just kind of tell us about an average day in the life of Dr. Benson? Oh, man, that's a um, difficult question to answer because honestly, no two days are the same. I can be doing anything from reading literature to try to see how new findings in the field are related maybe to something a student of mine is working on in the lab. Um, there's certainly days where I spend a lot of time writing papers or writing grants. I spend a huge chunk of time trying to write grants or revise grants or think about new ideas for grants. I also review grants for NIH, for funding agencies, so I spend some time doing that and then traveling and um, sort of giving my input on those grants and sitting on those panels. Um, my students do write their papers and they have to write dissertations and they've got to write kind of reports for the end of the semester. So I spend a lot of time editing their writing as them getting a degree, a PhD is really a training. And so I spend a lot of time editing and sort of advising them and helping them develop that skill set. Um, and then we spend a fair bit of time going over the actual data from experiments that we're, they're doing and, and thinking about that and seeing if there's another way we need to ask the question or do the experiment. So I usually meet with students in person on that, but they'll also send me data and then I might just go over the data and maybe compare it to, to something else that's going on in the field. And I meet with collaborators um, to talk about sort of our data and get their input and feedback to help uh, maybe guide or direct what we're going to do next. I also try to go out just personally and talk in the community about um, the research that we do in my lab and sort of my career path, really kind of you know, hoping to maybe inspire the next generation of cancer immunotherapists. So I, I enjoy doing that. I personally just go out and spend time doing that. And then like a day like today, I'm sitting here doing a podcast. So it's a mixed bag of all those things. And any given day, I'm probably doing several of those things throughout the day. So out of all of that, and Charlie, that was a really long list. So I'm not sure where <laughs> you put like sleeping and eating. I that know you don't. Happen. <laughs> apparently not. Apparently not. But so, out of all of that, though, in all seriousness, what's the hardest part? Oh man, I think the hardest part for me is 
the people, like the managing the people part. So the students, because they're learning and they're, you know, they're, they're getting trained, and so it's a difficult process to get through. But also even managing the staff that's meant to sort of help the students and help everybody in the lab that's doing the research, because it's hard to know, you know, different things motivate different people, and people work differently. And you know, I think as a scientist, we're not really trained to think about the personnel or the people management piece. So that's really the hardest part for me because I think I have to take a breath to, you know, recognize that this is a person you're interacting with and you want to try to get the best out of them, you know, that you can and you want them to be excited and energized and motivated. And, you know, that's not easy. There's no cookie-cutter recipe for kind of figuring that out for each individual person. So that's kind of the hardest part for me. You know, I, I remember when one of my first grad students gave a presentation at a, at a national meeting, and she had been an amazing grad student, but of course, as you said, it's a challenging space to be in, and it's always a struggle to know if you're mentoring the person the way they need to be mentored. And when she stood up to give that talk, that was honestly one of the best moments of my first couple of years of being a PI, because you're right, so much work goes into mentoring students and postdocs, and then when you see them just grow as a scientist, it's just fantastic. So what what about for you? I mean, what, what's been like a really rewarding place that you've been in recently? So I would have to kind of ditto what you said, is that seeing the students when they make it through and you know where they began and then you see how they evolve and you see them get their, you know, first job offer and go on and get their postdoc or I had a student go and get a, a scientist position at a biotech company in California. I mean, that, there's no feeling like that. But so I think you anticipate that that's going to be, you know, a positive reward of this. But um, I really like just talking about my research because I feel like the field I'm in has literally exploded while I've been in it. And so when you talk about it, the, the, it, the excitement sort of becomes palpable in the people that you're interacting with. Um, and I kind of like to see that where, where people are not initially maybe aware of, of what's going on sort of in the field of, of cancer immunotherapy. And then you see sort of a light bulb go off and they get as excited as I was when I sort of initially thought about it. So for me, just talking about the science and talking with other people in the field, because there's a lot of buzz and excitement going on, I mean, I, there's nothing that can really replace that feeling and that excitement about the field potentially being able to make a huge impact on, you know, therapies that are getting to patients. So that's the thing that, like, every day wakes me up. I'm in the shower thinking about this all day and all night because it's just so um, exciting and kind of rewarding to, to be involved in it. All right. Well, you gave me such a nice lead-in because... Immunotherapy has, of course, become this incredibly hot topic, but I think that your perspective is is different and interesting, so give us your elevator pitch first, then we'll dive in a little bit more deeply, but I'd like to know kind of where do you fit in in the immunotherapy landscape? Um, so in general, I think people have started to realize over the, the past decade or so that, you know, there's no magic silver bullet for cancer therapy, and Standard therapies like, you know, surgery or chemotherapy or radiation are used on um, broadly across many patients, but radiation is probably the standard therapy that's used. Most cancer patients will receive some form of radiation during the course of their treatment. And so originally, historically, radiation was thought to be really damaging to, you know, cancer cells more than it was to normal cells, and so the intent was to treat them with radiation to directly kill these tumor cells. But 
we all now know that tumor cells evolve, and they certainly evolve mechanisms or strategies to avoid death from agents like radiation. And so patients will often recur after radiation therapy, or it won't be curative in those individuals. But what has more recently been um, understood or realized is that besides the direct ability of radiation to kill some cells, uh, it also has the ability to actually prime the immune system to sort of recognize things that are different about cancer cells and to better attack and kill these cancer cells. So really what my lab studies is um, the mechanisms or the sort of processes that radiation imparts on these tumor cells that won't be directly killed by radiation and what has changed about those cancer cells that then make them better targets for the immune system. And so how can we use these pathways that we know are changed in cancer cells um, to think about really defining alternate ways to use radiation. So to move away from maybe the historic approach of thinking that you're going to kill all the tumor cells and not kill healthy cells, and instead think about using these now known, known new pathways um, for radiation, specifically with the approach of knowing that you're going to try to get it to partner with all of these immune-based therapies that are now being used more and more often in patients. So it's really centered around using radiation in a new way that's specifically to partner with immune-based therapies and to take advantage of the immune attack of cancer cells. So if that's the case, I guess if I'm sitting in a cancer patient's shoes right now and I've known about immunotherapy and now I'm learning that low-dose radiation could enhance the efficacy of immunotherapy. So I guess maybe two questions. Why isn't this part of standard treatment of care for cancer patients? And what's the route to getting there? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and that's kind of the million-dollar question. So the reality is that radiation has been around for so long that there's established protocols for what radiation dose you would give to any given patient based on the cancer that they have. And so those doses, the timing that you administer those, those are defined by the cancer that the patient presents with. And they're defined and meant and intended to be curative in most cases. So they're trying to blast the, the tumor away. Or they can be given in some instances where they're really just meant to relieve pain. So they know that there's no cure, but they're just doing it to relieve some pressure or some pain in a patient. And so that's the standard of care. So what we're talking about here is trying to modify that standard of care where we would be saying, don't try to give this higher dose of radiation where you were trying to cure the cancer. Instead, you're trying to use a dose of radiation that's really just going to modify the way that the tumor looks because you know you're using it in combination with immune-based therapies. And so that's a real hard transition for the current clinical landscape to make without lots of data to support it. So you can't sort of go to an MD and say, oh, instead of using the high dose that you use, I want you to use a lower dose because I want you to combine it with this immunotherapy without lots of data to support that change. Because what you're saying to a patient is, I'm going to give you less of radiation, right? But we're doing that so that we can partner it with this other new therapy that we think the two will work way better than the single agent would work alone. And so the short answer of why it's not being used now is because, one, the dose of radiation for different cancers is different. And so you've got to get all that information out there that says um, in lung cancer, you would want to use a particular dose of radiation when you're combining it with um, immunotherapy X, which adds to the second complication is that when people use this word immunotherapy, they're using it as, as if it's one agent, but it's not. It's 
10 or 15 different agents, and different agents are approved for different cancers. So you kind of have the complication of different radiation doses for different cancers and then different immunotherapies being approved for different cancers. And so without the data in each one of those cancers, that's providing the evidence of how radiation is enhancing the, the effectiveness of that immunotherapy, it'd be very difficult to convince a patient to, to take less of something um, in combination. And so I think the way that we get there is exactly the research that I'm doing and that's funded by ACS is to basically provide the data to support making those changes and show how much more effective it is than sort of the older traditional route. So the ACS is pretty proud of you. We have been following you closely and I'm really excited about what you're doing. But I think it'd be interesting to know that or interesting for our audience to know that if you if you were to stand up and talk about what you're doing in front of a group of not scientists but cancer patients, what would you really want them to know? Maybe about the space you're in or about immunotherapy in general? Oh man. Um gosh, I think that what I'd want them to know is that we're really in a like a unprecedented, I feel like, time of progress for therapies for cancer. I mean and the things that are happening in the space of trying to utilize the body's own immune system to control and regulate cancer um, is pretty impressive. So that's really exciting, right? But the flip side of that is that cancer is not one thing, right? It's a diverse collection of diseases. Um, and the thing about the immune system is that it really is kind of regulated differently depending upon the part of the body that you're looking at. And so when you have all these different cancers, trying to take advantage of that immune system just requires a lot of information about how the immune system works at that particular site and that particular patient. The thing that's exciting, though, is that we've seen evidence of cures from immune-based therapies that are in development and recently approved. So we know that this is possible, right? And now it's just a matter of trying to figure out how to make it happen at all the different sort of locations in the body and to make it happen for more people than just the, the few, the small percentage of people that are responding initially. But I think it's exciting because people have seen those cures, so everybody is really energized because you know the potential's there. And so now the community overall, where it's scientists, it's the oncologists that are working directly with the patients, it's right people like a ACS, funding agencies, and then the biomedical companies that actually get the drugs approved through the FDA are all seeing this and recognizing that it's going to kind of take a community group effort um, in order to get these successes happening much more often in many more patients. But everybody is kind of on board and really energized about it just because you, you see outcomes that really historically we've never seen before. So has there been a way that ACS funding has impacted you or maybe the way you think about your work or the impact of your work? So I think ACS has impacted me not necessarily thinking about my work, but thinking about maybe more the work of academic scientists in general because the funding for research is becoming, you know, it's a shrinking pot, um, and it's more and more difficult for, I think, young or new investigators um, to get funding and to have their careers sort of take off. So from my perspective, the, the thing that ACS does is that it seems to step in um, and, and support those early-stage investigators when they might not be able to get support somewhere else during their career, and it really seems to be the thing, the catalyst that 
can make a, a person stay in science and have a sustainable career. So I just think it kind of puts you in a space where when you're early on in your career, ACS is kind of the, the glue that I think holds young investigators together and is kind of the thing that can catapult them to that next level, where for me personally, you know, if I didn't have the ACS funding, my career path would, would have been dramatically different and, and definitely not as successful as it is now. So speaking of your career path, I owe you a congratulations. You've recently been promoted to associate professor with tenure, which is pretty amazing. Yay, so, yay indeed. And you know, one thing it makes me think about is, so our listeners can probably tell you're a woman. <laughs> Or yeah. you're a, a voice, a man with a fairly feminine voice. <laughs> but in fact, you are a lady, one of my favorites. Um, but you're also African-American, and they can't tell that. I'm just wondering if now where you sit as a tenured associate professor, incredibly accomplished, leading this really dynamic group of students, is there anything that you wish you could have known at the beginning of this or even when you were a kid, just interested in science, that if you had known that, it would have made this path different or easier or something that you might share with those people who are at those different stages, who are either at the beginning of this career in science or just this kid who's thinking about it and sees not so many people who look just like her doing this. Yeah, I that's something that I, you know, I, I don't think a day goes by that I don't, um, think about that. I actually just posted something on my Instagram recently. I was like, most days I feel like a unicorn because there aren't a lot of people that look like me that are in the position that I'm in. Um, and clearly that, and that wasn't the case at all when I was growing up. I was always really, really good at science, but I don't think I ever thought about being a scientist, probably just because the image wasn't really out there. And so I think if I had even known that that was a possibility, I would have much earlier have been like, oh, of course I want to be a scientist. I'm really good at science. I love it. I love everything about it. That's the path I'm going to take as opposed to kind of stumbling into it um, backwards in college just because I was like, ooh, I need to get better grades. Let me just change to a science major because I'm good at science. Um, and so it's, it's something that I spend a lot of time in my day-to-day -day trying to go out and um, – sort of show images of myself and, and the students in my lab because they're all very diverse, just to get people the image or the idea that anybody, right, there's no particular way that you have to look to be, I think, um, a successful scientist who's really excited about what they're doing and that it doesn't kind of look like the traditional, you know, Albert Einstein image that everybody's used to seeing. And even when I go out to the meetings, I mean, it's pretty diverse, a diverse group of people there. There's lots of women, but I feel like you wouldn't know that if you weren't in the field, and, I, and often those images are not the ones that are being displayed. And so I just kind of try to go out. That's why in my personal time I do go out and just try to talk to schools and students, elementary school kids, whenever I can, anytime I get an opportunity to talk about what I do because I love to talk about it. But I also do think there's something powerful, powerful about seeing um, an image of a minority female saying that as well, that you don't typically see. So that is, and that's, you know, a little bit of a frustration in the field because I feel like I want to get as many people um, like me working in this field just because I think it's so cool and it's so exciting. But I think if people don't see that image, it's, it's hard to convince them that it's, it's something you want to participate in. So maybe it sounds like your advice to the younger Charlie might have been, girl, you got this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's right. going to be just, just like, fine. You can do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think the, the advice I always give to any students, because I'm excited about it, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be excited about it. So I always just go towards if I had just chosen a career, moved with what I knew I was good at and I really liked, I would have, you know, I ended up here anyway. That's kind of where I ended up. And so that's kind of always my advice to people is think about what you're good at but what really excites you and interests you and just move in that direction. It it really doesn't matter if you don't see someone that looks like you that does it because it's your, you know, your life. And if that's what you're passionate about, you'll be successful. Well, Charlie, I think I speak on behalf of the entire ACS when I say we are awfully excited that you landed where you did and we're so impressed with all you're doing. And good luck. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks for chatting with us today. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye.